to This Week in Theater, courtesy of the Broadway Radio Network. I am Broadway star's Jennifer McHugh. And I'm Broadway Radio's Matt Tamanini. This Week in Theater is a bi-weekly podcast talking about regional theater productions around the U.S. This week, we will be talking to the Paper Mill Playhouse in Milburn, New Jersey, as well as the Director of Organizing and Mobilization of Actors' Equity. We'll also discuss some reviews from a few national tours. Matt, how are you doing? I'm doing great, Jen. How are you? I am... Before you answer how great you are, I'm so excited to hear you talk about Rent. I did. I specifically did not ask you about you seeing the tour of Rent before we started recording because I want to save it for the review section. But I'm so excited that you got to see Rent as your first show back since before the pandemic. Well, I'm glad you're excited to hear it because I have a lot to say. Of course you do. Course. As you said, it was not only my first event out of the house. It was the first time I've been in a theater in two years and it was the Dolby theater, which is where the Oscars were a few Mm -hmm. weeks ago. And the last time I was at the Dolby theater, I was there to see Chris rock. So you know how (laughs) karma works. (laughs) There you go. It's kismet on kismet on kismet. As I said, uh, we both talked to a few people this week. Um, Did you want to go first or would you like me to go first? I'll go first just because uh, I think this is a little, little news centric. Uh, As you mentioned at the top of the show, I spoke with Stephanie Fry, who is the director of organizing and mobilization for the Actors' Equity Association, the union that represents stage actors and stage managers. As you might have heard us talking about on today on Broadway throughout the course of the week, Actors' Equity has joined in with the non-union tour of Waitress to actually attempt to organize and become a union tour. A lot of this has to do with the fact that not only is there a non-union tour of Waitress making its way across the country, but Waitress just recently launched a mini equity tour as well. Because of the unique situations where both the equity and the non-equity version of this tour are doing essentially the same show, there raises a lot of concerns with the fact that the members of the equity tour are making three times as much money as the members of the non-equity tour, despite the fact that the non-equity tour is the exact same in terms of production values, but also did a lot of the training for the folks doing the mini tour. We get into a lot of these conversations um, about why this is an appropriate action for Actors' Equity to be involved in, what kind of led up to them taking this fairly gigantic step to involve the National Labor Relations Board and everything else that could happen because of this organizing effort. So here's my conversation with AEA Director of Organizing and Mobilization, Stephanie Fry. So I guess let's start at the beginning on a very basic level. Why is equity involved in this effort? Would the union stand behind any tour organizational effort or are the particulars of this specific circumstance, which we'll obviously get into, unique enough to warrant equity's involvement here? Yeah, so I'll kind of answer that twofold. I mean, sort of the first part of the question, absolutely. Any non-equity production out there that has workers that are interested in organizing with equity to improve their conditions or their pay, like DM me, (laughs) reach out. I'd be happy to help even just to consult to see if it's actually a good option. Um, But that said, uh, with Waitress, I was made aware 
I want to say maybe a month and a half ago about this situation where there was both a a union equity tour going out and a non-equity tour that was already out. And so um, I I approached uh, a few folks in the company of the non-equity waitress and uh, asked how they felt about it and if they wanted to do anything to change it. And that's where things sort of kicked off. And I know a lot of the reporting has been around the significant pay differentials between the equity and non-equity tours. And I think that's fairly easy for even non-insiders to understand. So beyond that, are you able to provide any insight into the other conditions that were you know, problematic enough to require a unionization effort and then in turn equities participation? Yeah, I mean, we're still learning um, as we talk to these workers about kind of what they're experiencing. Um, I know that they have spoken to networks, their employer, about a few other issues um, and didn't get anywhere. And so that, that also was why they kind of saw no other option. Is this a matter of just the pay differentials? Because it, it's obviously unusual to have an equity tour and a non-equity tour out at the same time, especially when from reports and people that I know, you know, that have connections, they're essentially the exact same thing. That's obviously pretty unusual, but is it, are there safety and health concerns that are a part of this? Um, because obviously it's all, everybody involved with this tour, at least from an equity potential representation standpoint, actors and stage managers, they agreed to the terms of their original contract. They signed those contracts. So to go above and beyond that and to attempt unionization, you would think that there would have to be something that was, at least from my novice understanding, something that you know might be might have been unexpected, at least uh, from a contractual standpoint for them. Is that am I reading that correctly? Yeah, I, I mean, I don't I can't get into too much detail on it, sure. but I think you're you're spot on in that the pay differential is obviously the core issue here. Um, and especially when we know that there are shared resources between the equity and the non-equity production, like you're you're right on track in that this is the same product. And, you know, we're looking for ways to, you know, lessen the disparity between the two, uh, the two pay payrolls. So if this effort is successful um, and I don't I, I want to kind of get into what that process looks like and what the timeline would be, but just taking aside the logistics of it. But if this is successful, is the outcome that what is currently the non-equity tour would just be converted into an equity tour and everybody on that tour would, you know, from a stage manager and actor perspective would be eligible for all of the, you know, collectively bargained rights and benefits of being equity members from that point moving forward? Or would it be something where they could potentially be uh, able to receive back benefits or back pay of some sort? What, What is, I guess, the ultimate desired outcome from this? Yeah. So, I mean, the, the thought is that if we are successful, um, you know, we will have an obligation to bargain just like networks will have an obligation to bargain. That's, you know, that's by legal standard per the labor board. Um, that said, you know, we know how low we're willing to go and we know how low those workers are willing to go and, and we're willing to fight for them. Um, And I do know that retroactivity is a high priority. 
and something that we feel like we have a very good case for because of the fact of those shared resources between the equity and the non-equity tour. You, you've mentioned the shared resources a couple times, and on our show on Wednesday, um, one of my co-hosts, Grace Aki, and I, she kind of she knows some folks that are involved with the non-equity tour, and what she had said was, and, and feel free to correct me if I'm wrong on any of this, if you're able to, if you're not able to, that's fine, um, but it, it sounds like because the equity or the non-equity tour had been running for quite a while in this mini equity tour, which just kind of popped up in the past you know, few months or, or weeks or whatever, um, kind of came about during the run of the non-equity production, that there was not only some production design and, and stuff that's been shared, but also the actors and potentially even stage managers have been involved with uh, training some of the folks on the equity tour. And then according to the New York Times article, that there has actually been some transference between people who were on the non-union tour going over to the union tour. And they didn't say if that was actors or stage managers. Um, but when you're talking about these shared resources, is that what you mean by that? Yeah, that that is what I mean by that. And and I would just the the correction I would make is that people moving from a non-equity production to an equity production, like happy for those folks, you know, you know, obviously that's not, that's not a problem in our eyes. Um, but you know, it does make the employer's world a little bit easier, um, because they have a pool of folks to pull from, uh, when they're casting, you know, the next iteration, so to speak. Um, so I, I would say it's more so about the, the first few things that you mentioned about, um, any sort of training that was being taken place, um, that kind of, you know, in our eyes, it, it felt a little like it slighted the non-equity, uh, cast. Yeah. And, and obviously the, it goes to show how easy the transference is between the non-union tour to the union tour. So it shows that more to your point from earlier, that these are essentially the exact same tour, just under different contracts with different benefits to the workers. But you you tweeted something out on Wednesday that I wanted to get a little bit more uh, specificity on. And you talked about how um, the three different arms of Waitress, so to speak, Broadway, the union tour, the non-union tour, all received different shuttered venue operators grants. And according to what you said in your, uh, in your post, all three of those entities received $10 million in government funds, at least from my reading of that. That seems fairly re- remarkable to me, given the, you know, kind of the substantial differences in cost amongst the three different productions, especially the two union ones versus the non-union one. I- is that... Is that what that tweet means, that it was $30 million, $10 million over each of those three, and yet there are still those financial uh, differences between the salaries from the union to the non-union tours? Yep, that is exactly what I meant by it. And is there, I assume that that's publicly accessible information, or is that information that you found during your research? So people can go in and look and all that stuff. Yep, that's on the SBA, the Small Business, I want to say Administration, David? association um, on their website. And you can pull, I think in early in the pandemic, they were releasing weekly records of yeah. these award, the grant awards. And then they may be doing it less frequently now, but yeah, I, I was just curious how much Waitress Touring LLC, which is the non-equity tour. Um, and when I, you know, you do control finds to look up waitress and three records show up, I was like, huh, that's interesting. So, um, yeah, it was very revealing. And 
you know, I think it, it frustrated the, the non-equity folks even more because I know that early on when they returned from the pandemic, there was discussions um, with networks about, you know, increasing their pay. And especially when they heard about the equity tour going out and saw the uh, audition listing for that. And, you know, network's excuse was that the pandemic hit them very hard. And, you know, at this time, I don't know if anybody in the company had this information about the SVOG money, but, um, but here we are today and we've learned about it. Not only have we learned about it, we learned that they, the property itself got $30 million. So uh, it's very, very enlightening. You might not know this off the top of your head, but and I don't remember at the time my very t- top of the head, you know, memory of this would be that there was an equity tour of Waitress in 2020 before the pandemic. Do you know if I don't think there was a non-equity tour, perhaps there was one planned that got shuttered because of the pandemic. But do you know what the status of those tour were or was in, say, March of 2020? Well, yeah, I I would we'd probably have to fact check this. But my okay. my understanding was that it had actually already been non-equity. Okay. Um, I think the last um the equity tour ran through 2018 and then in 2019 it turned non-equity okay that Um, sounds familiar now that you say that yeah yeah i think and there's a few people in this non-equity company that have been with the show since 2019 so um and you know they were there uh you know, pre-pandemic and then we're pulled back in post-pandemic. Got it. Okay. Um, getting back to some of the the process questions here, currently, at least from what's publicly available, this non-union tour is scheduled to have dates through, I think, early June. Um, what is the timetable for having a resolution on this? We know from, you know, kind of watching things with whether it's the Amazon um, organizational efforts or, or other things, you know, outside of theater, that these things don't generally happen fairly quickly, especially with the National Labor Relations Board getting involved. Do you have any idea as to what type of timetable you're looking at for a resolution here? Yeah, I mean, we are we are working, um, you know, we filed on Tuesday. Legally, they have two weeks. They uh, being networks has two weeks to uh, respond with their statement of position, essentially, on if they're going to challenge anything in our petition. And, um, you know, from there, we're supposed to come to an election agreement about how the election will work. Um we are obviously seeking a, a swift election. We think doing in-person balloting uh, would make the most sense just because of the nature of touring, like mail ballots are not going to work here. Hmm. Um, that said, like we have to work with networks to come to an agreement. The NLRB kind of plays mediator. If we are not able to come to an agreement, uh, we have a hearing date in early May, and then that would sort of kind of help move things along. And then from there, the election can happen pretty quickly after there's been an, an agreement made. Um, and then obviously, since we're doing it, you know, hopefully, fingers crossed in person, um, you know, we'd be able to get the results pretty quickly and then begin to start bargaining pretty quickly. So um, we're still hopeful that this will be, you know, expeditious process and we're, we're doing what we can on our end to help push it along. Yeah. And, and for, I don't know if there are plans for additional dates to happen after that. The the last, you know, official stop that's on the schedule now. So um, I guess moving forward, if there are more dates, that would obviously have a benefit. And you mentioned potential back pay and, and retroactivity in there as well. The, the one thing that 
that I've, I've seen some people mention, and obviously I understand that your hope is likely that this would, you know, if this is successful, that it will lead other producers to invest in sending out tours under equity contracts in the future. But is there any concern that the pendulum could swing the other way and this could lead to fewer tours going out and therefore fewer jobs available for actors and stage managers? I know you Equity just represents technically their members, but Equity's always done a pretty good job of looking out for the totality of the industry. So is there any concern about that when you're doing things like this, especially with tours that are out and have contracts and then trying to change things midstream? Yeah, I mean, I think there's always, we're always keeping a strategic eye on how we can keep the number of jobs up while also maintaining people's livelihoods on the job. Um, that is, I'm sure that's a balance of most unions and I think it's ever present at equity. Um, that said, we have always been, um, in a position where we have flexibility in our contracts and, you know, the set agreement offers a lot of flexibility. Um, I think that the, the, the turning point will be whether producers want to work within that flexibility or if they want to prioritize their profits. So, um, you know, I think Waitress is a very strong example. I think Book of Mormon going out next season is another strong example where um, these are properties that are still very present. They're still selling pretty well. and. Um, and yet, and they're charging presenters the same guarantees. And right. yet the, the money shaking out at the end for the actual workers is not the same. So something doesn't add up, right? And I think that to me, I, I read it as, okay, they're trying to just get milk as much money as they can um, at this point versus like seeing it as the big... Um, the big property that it was perhaps in a first national, but even first nationals don't always go out equity as we saw with Tootsie. So um, yeah. I, I think that I'm, I'm hopeful that producers will see this as a warning shot and that, you know, they will start prioritizing workers pay and safety and working conditions and that, there will no longer be non-equity tours and it will not dissipate the pool of tours. Um, it will just mean that all jobs have union protections, which principally as a union, we've always believed that all workers deserve a union. And um, so I think this is an opportunity to really change that. I, I hesitate to ask this question just because it, it's not exactly on topic. So if David jumps in here and yells at me, I apologize. Uh, but you mentioned the fact that like you think that everybody deserves to have a union. And um, I don't know if it was earlier this year or towards the end of, of 2021, um, Equity announced the ability for non-union members to apply through a, and I this is off the top of my head again, so please forgive me if I'm, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, uh, but to apply for membership in non-traditional ways or having to, you know, having the ability to go back and prove some um, some credits. Is, is that, do you see that effort as kind of, the, the side uh, project uh, or, or connected project to this movement to try to open up the, the benefits of the union to as many actors and stage managers as possible, um, which honestly, during the past two years has been really difficult for folks to to work and to make money and to, in turn, from a non-union perspective, to earn enough points and everything to earn member, you know, membership status in the traditional way. 
Yeah. I mean, I, I won't get too far into it. Cause again, I don't yeah. want to get too off topic, but I, I mean, I think the, the real goal in opening the membership is that it took the, the keys away from the employer and put them back into the hands of the workers. Um, it allowed a worker to make a decision on whether or not they were, you know, interested in joining the union. Um, of course we had the EMC program, which you mentioned, um, again, that was still prompted by employers. Like you had to be working for an employer that had the EMC program. And again, you were working a certain number of weeks at perhaps subpar wages. Um, and then, you know, the other option to join the union, of course, was you get an equity contract and you have the option to join, which again is giving the keys to the employer, um, to essentially be the gatekeeper, of who is in and out of the union. And so as part, it was actually really part of our um, DNI retrofit that we looked at ways that we can make our membership um, you know, more inclusive and, and more representative of the general population. And so open access uh, was it. And it's it's been uh, very successful so far. Um, of right. course, like there's gonna be challenges with anything that rolls out, but um, I think it has really opened the door to a lot of people that, you know, have been roadblocked by employers before. Yeah, that's great. I'll, I'll wrap up on this question. And this is, um, you know, kind of a general uh, thought question on this. It was mentioned in the New York Times article uh, about the unionization efforts, but they mentioned that this was at least in part um, encouraged and motivated by the success that we saw um, with the Amazon workers in Staten Island, do you feel like the big, you know, headline splashy stories like that? And then I think in turn, this union by the by the waitress tour, do you see those kind of starting a a snowball of organizational efforts, you know, not just for, you know, potential equity members, but across um, you know, workers' organizations moving forward. Do you think that that's these are just blips, or do you think that they have some real ability to prompt change and more openness to make moves like this in the future? Yeah, listen, I I think the pandemic really changed the workforce. Yeah. Um, and I think it really made a lot of us, all, I want to say all of us, really take stock in what gets us up and what gets us out. Uh, away from our families, away from our homes, um, and is it worth it? And and how we're treated. And I think a lot of those things came up during the pandemic. A just because we were stuck at home, but also because of all the conversations around race that were happening. And I think that that has really empowered the workforce. And you know, now we're also in a labor shortage um, in other industries, but. Um, that said, I think that workers across industries have seen this as an opportunity to kind of turn the tables and take their power back, uh, mostly because I think people woke up and saw that, you know, this industry is very exclusive. It is very hard uh, to, to make it in our industry as someone of color, a caregiver. There are so many obstacles depending on your circumstances. And um, I think what I saw and what I've heard from talking to, to colleagues and people that are working across the country on stages is that they felt that this coming back from the pandemic was an opportunity 
to change how the industry worked and change how we worked within the industry. And so I see this effort, you know, just like we've been having conversations about getting rid of of 10 out of 12 and talking about what the work week looks like. This is the same thing. This is workers realizing I do deserve more pay and I'm not just going to listen to my employer that says that they suffered from the pandemic. I, I want a union to represent me and be a bigger power to push what I can accomplish at a negotiating table and have 50,000 people behind me in doing that. And so I, I actually think that the pandemic was really uh, the precursor to all of this. And um, I hope it's just the beginning, frankly. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to go through all of this. This is um, a fascinating case study and and one that I think a lot of folks will be anxiously watching uh, the outcome of. And hopefully, as you said, it is a speedy thing and hopefully it happens over the next few weeks. Yeah, absolutely. Happy to come in. The non-equity tour of Waitress, which is hoping to become one of the equity tours of Waitress, is getting ready to start a run in Binghamton, New York on the 19th. It'll play very short one or two day runs in Williamsport, Pennsylvania, Waterbury, Connecticut, Reading, Pennsylvania, Charleston and Columbia, South Carolina, Jacksonville, Florida, Niceville, Florida, and some other places across the country um, leading up to its currently scheduled final performance date that you heard me talk about in the interview down here in Melbourne, Florida at the King Center, which uh, I am currently have a tab open to purchase tickets to see because not only do I love waitress, but I am uh, would like to go out and support these folks who are doing something that is honestly pretty gutsy. Uh, given you know the state of, of this industry trying to challenge some of the most uh, powerful producers on Broadway, it's uh, it, it takes a lot of guts, I think, Jen. Very interesting. Binghamton, New York, Reading, Pennsylvania, it's like you're describing my college years. Yeah, that is very much your neck of the woods. It really is. If those cities could talk, boy. My interview this week, Matt, was I spoke to an actor named Kingsley Legs. Mm-hmm. Kingsley is performing in the Paper Mill Playhouse's production of The Wanderer, which is based on the life and times of the singer Dion. And Dion, who's still alive, was actively involved in this production. So we got to talk about that. Kingsley portrays Willie Green, who's a real person. And uh, it was an interesting conversation. So here is my interview with Kingsley Legs. So Kingsley, I was looking over your bio. Can you just tell us a little bit about where you come from and some of the things that you have done? Oh my goodness. Um, well, I'm from St. Louis, Missouri. Uh, and I've been at this for, I guess next year will be my 40th year in show business doing this. Um, I started out at a company, uh, St. Louis Black Repertory Company in St. Louis, um, as both an actor and kind of an administrator and, you know, kind of one of those situations where you do everything. You set up the chairs and, <laughs> and you put up the, the, the pictures in the lobby and sweep the floors and, and also be in the plays. Um, so I did that for a number of years and then um, I started doing shows and other theaters in St. Louis and uh, eventually moved to Chicago to a bigger market. 
and um, had um, quite a bit of success there. And that's how I actually got to Broadway from Chicago. Uh, my first Broadway show was Miss Saigon uh, back in the 90s. Um, and uh, I've just been kind of going ever since. That's amazing. Now, this new production is at Paper Mill Playhouse, which is in New Jersey. Um, yes. Paper Mill has a fantastic reputation over the years and puts out some amazing stuff. So this new production is called The Wanderer. Um, it's based on the life of the singer Dion. Is that correct? Yes, correct. Can you tell us a little bit about the production and your role in the production? Well, it's a wonderful show. It's based on his life and... Uh his music. Uh, I think uh, most people are familiar with, with uh, Dion and the Belmonts and the doo-wop style of, of, of singing. Um, um, he's a wonderful, wonderful guy with a lot of uh, knowledge and information and who's had quite a life. You know, he was just a young teenager when he reached his, his uh, fame. So, um, you know, that makes for a long life of and seeing a lot of things. Uh, but the show is about his music and his life. Um, it's also a story about triumph and, you know, salvation and redemption. Uh, it deals with addiction, uh, with the backdrop of being, you know, all this wonderful music. Uh, my role uh, is Willie Green, who is an actual person in his life, who kind of, uh, uh, was a person who encouraged him and, you know, really listened to him and talked to him, you know, maybe when other people didn't. Um, he, he was a great influence in his life. And, you know, I, I kind of serve as kind of a spiritual uh, guy to, to his journey. You're playing a real life person. What kind of research and, and, background do you do when you're when you're portraying a real life person like this well you just try to find as much information as you can um there's actually a couple of willie a few willie greens out there and i had done a, a great deal of research or, or not a great deal but uh, some research about this one willie green who actually died recently a couple of years ago only to find out that that was not the willie green <laughs> Uh, but but he but this Willie Green was a blues guy, uh, but unfortunately he was not the the same Willie Green. So uh, there's not really a lot out there about the Willie Green that I portray. Uh, so most of my uh, information came from speaking with Dion and him telling me about that that relationship, and um, you know, and then you know the theatrical license that we have to develop the character into, you know, one that serves the play. Now, as you said, uh, Dion is still alive, correct? Yes, yes. And and he's, has he worked with this production personally? Yes, he was there every day, every day during rehearsal, you know, uh, giving us tips and giving us information and stories from the past. And, you know, he's, he's very excited and it was really wonderful to have him, him around. You know, it's uh, not always the case when you're working on a musical about someone's life. But it was really, I think, a great advantage for us to have him around. That's pretty incredible. Some of his major hits that people know would probably be Run Around Sue or Teenager in Love and obviously The Wanderer. 
is this, um, you said it's a musical. Is it like a jukebox musical? Is it all Dion songs? Well, well, I mean, I'm sure it's being classified as a jukebox musical, maybe, but it's so much more than that, I believe. And I think the uh, critics would agree um, because the story is really, really uh, gritty and and there's a lot of music from that he's that from he's recorded in recent years that that songs that people don't know, you know, like I sing a blues song and another uh, tune in that too that that the people that, uh, you know, not as popular as the runaround suit. And uh, so a lot of the music is a little more current and not necessarily things that people would know. But they've been very, very, very well received. So you guys are running for uh, four weeks? Yes. And you're about halfway through or almost through? Oh, we're almost through. we got a couple more weeks left. And how has the reception been to this musical? Oh, it's been incredible. Um, Opening night was was amazing. And people seem to, to, uh, they can't stop talking about it. First, the response within in the theater during the show is amazing. People applaud when they hear the intro to the songs because, you know, people know the songs. Um, but talking to people afterwards, they're just uh, kind of beside themselves. There. And a lot of people are coming back again and again. A lot of people say, this is my fourth time. This is my fifth time. So the response has been really overwhelming and really positive. Is this the world premiere at the paper mill? Yes, it is. Are there plans to take it other places afterwards? Well, the plan and the hope is that it can go to Broadway. You know, there's a lot of, you know, a lot that needs to happen before that. But uh, I'm sure that that is the plan and that is the hope. I imagine doing this kind of a show with this kind of music and it's the 50s and 60s doo-wop and and this brand of music um, has to be really enjoyable for the audience as well as the cast. What, what was the rehearsal process like in getting in everyone into this like frame of mind of this time period? Uh, well, I was, you know, I was one of the late, later uh, additions to the cast. Uh, a lot of them had been uh, along on the project for several years. Uh, they had done readings and workshop productions so I, I I didn't come along until we started rehearsal for for this. Uh, so they were already kind of already there. <laughs> uh, I had to get on board. But uh, as you say, the music the music itself is so full of so much joy, and um, it's it's not very hard to 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 get in get in the in the mood of it. You know. What do you think that people find so compelling about this story of Dion and the Belmonts? Well, I think it touches on on truth and reality. You know, uh, everyone, we all have addictions to something. Uh, so I think that everyone can relate to the story uh, on some level. And it's the, I think it's the humanity, just the humanity of the story. And the fact that it's so honest and straightforward which is in a world that is not always that way now. So I think people appreciate that. It also feels like a very American story. Um, and the fact that Dion is still alive and been so involved with the production, um, what, what has his response been to it? Oh, I think, uh, well, he, he's, he's had a great time, a great time watching us in rehearsal. Um, I 
think, you know, the whole theater thing is, is new for him. Uh, but I think he's really enjoyed being around the actors and experiencing his story, you know, come to life in a theatrical format. And I think it's been really uh, rewarding for him as well. Are there um, big, now I, I'm, I'm slightly familiar with the music of Deanne and the Belmonts, but are there big dance and production numbers? It looks like there's a lot of choreography. Yeah, there are some, some, some big numbers. Um, the runaround suit is, is a big, big dance number. <laughs> I don't want to give too much away, but uh, yeah, that's a big production number. And there's, there's a quite a couple others. It is a musical, so you got to have a big dance yes, number. Yes, of course. <laughs> so this was originally slated for the spring of 2020, and it was delayed, obviously, for obvious reasons. Was there a production ready to go when it shut down, or was it just in the beginning um, processes? No, I think uh, they were in... Uh, I don't think they were in rehearsal. It was just... It was on, on the schedule, and, and the plans were to move forward, and as we know, everything shut down. So they kind of, it got kind of canceled twice is, is my understanding that it got pushed back twice. So um, that makes this uh, even more exciting for, for everyone involved and certainly for Paper Mill Playhouse that, you know, they finally got it up and, and, and up and going and it's having such a, a good response. So the audiences are coming. They're having a great time. What are your hopes that they leave the theater with? Well, I, 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 I hope that people leave, first of all, happy. And, and that's very, very evident that people leave smiling and happy and singing. But I also hope that they leave with a, with a sense of, of having taken a journey and, you know, into someone's life and something very personal and deep for someone's life and and maybe finding something in that that that, that they, where they could put themselves in that. The Wanderer runs through April 28th at the Paper Mill Playhouse and as Kingsley said they're hoping that the show We'll eventually move on and hopefully find a place in New York. And if you want to go see it at the Paper Mill, you can find more information at thepapermillplayhouse.org. Okay, as we mentioned, we're going to talk about some reviews of national tours and then why don't you talk about that first and then I'll tell you about Rent and then we have oh. some further discussion on uh, a movie on Disney that is theatrically related. All right. So you're going to make me wait on your, on your rent oh, discussion yes, for yes, a minute. Yes. Okay. All right. So I recently saw the national tour, which is a non-equity tour of cats. I didn't see it once. I saw it twice and I was very glad to see it both times. Um, it is obviously a show that is strange. It is bonkers. I'm not completely sure that it is not about aliens uh, in some form or another, because I, at least in this staging, there was some UFO imagery in there, but that is neither here nor there. This was the first time that I'd ever seen anything Cats related. I'd never seen it on stage before. I had never seen the pro tape of the stage version, and I 
obviously did not see the movie adaptation a few years ago. And I was struck as I was watching this thinking, this has become such a meme and a cliche in our musical theater culture, but it had to have been a really fun and fairly revolutionary idea when Andrew Lloyd Webber and company originally came up with it. Taking the, the poetry of T.S. Eliot and setting it to music um, had to be a fairly unique and boundary-breaking form, at least from what I would imagine. Um, and while it seems cliche and hackneyed now, it was something that I was able to really kind of enjoy. Jen, this is very much a, a vibe show. It is a show that just begs to wash over you. If you put up even the littlest bit of resistance, you aren't going to get as much out of it as you would if you just let yourself be overtaken by the cats, figuratively, of course, because I am allergic. But if you come in with the intention of hate watching it, you will obviously have your fair share of, you know, snarky giggles at the nonsensical lyrics, the 80s synthopop orchestrations and skin tight lycra costumes. But if you go in open to experiencing the show on its own merits, on its own terms, chances are that you will enjoy yourself far more than the most cynical members of the audience seated around you. Chances are that you will marvel at the talent and athleticism of the cats and revel in the silliness of the specifically nonsensical strangeness that is cats. I've gone to just about every touring production that's come through the Dr. Phillips Center since it opened in 2014. The only, time, only ones I've missed have been because I've been out of town. Uh, and this was easily in the top five, maybe top three in terms of the most enthusiastic audience responses, especially in some of the bigger show-stopping numbers in the second act. Um, and I found myself really enjoying it. I purposely tried to go in without any preconceived notions about what Cats is, was, or should be. And I left enjoying it. I saw it as I usually do on the Tuesday night at the traditional press opening night. And then I saw it with my family's subscription tickets on Sunday afternoon, and I enjoyed it both times. So if this is coming to your neck of the woods and you don't necessarily have a lot of preconceived notions as to what Cats is, I would recommend it. It's um, it's a trip, literally and figuratively, and I can only imagine what it would be like if you were tripping. But um, similar to the Waitress Tour, Jen, this show is getting ready to play Elmira, New York, Scranton, Pennsylvania, Syracuse, and then Schenectady before it heads to the Midwest with places like Milwaukee, Springfield, Little Rock, Denver. It currently has tour stops playing through the end of June. I don't know if they're going to announce more dates with the new seasons coming up, but it was a show that I despite what I would have anticipated, really, really enjoyed. Elmira, New York was where my mother was born. There I'm from go. around Scranton, Pennsylvania, and I went to school around Syracuse, New York. So I feel like they're trying to tell me something because it's all about me. Yes, absolutely. But that's really nice to hear because, I, I mean, you've made it abundantly clear you're not a fan of, of ALW. So I appreciate you but, going uh, into it with like a open mind. And, you know, this show does not have a good rep, you know. no. And I will say, I love early Andrew Lloyd Webber stuff like Joseph, Avita, a superstar. Like, I could do those all day. It's after that where there starts to be diminishing returns for me with Andrew Lloyd Webber, whether it's Phantom or Aspects of Love or, you know, and I can do a little bit of Sunset, um, but, you know, maybe throw in a little bit of um, Starlight Express as well. But as time goes on, I, I like them less and less, but... This one falls into that solid middle ground where it's not 
Avita or Jesus Christ Superstar, just in a technical or dream coat. But it's it's in there with like, you know, Sunset Boulevard, where I like it's a show that I could definitely enjoy and have no problem seeing. All right, so lay it on me now. I've been <laughs> I've been waiting patiently. Tell me your thoughts on this non-equity tour of Rent. Okay, well, I don't consider myself an expert in most things, especially listening to you guys on on today on Broadway. You know, I uh, am am the amateur of the group at best. But when it comes to Rent, I consider myself a little bit of an expert because this yeah. was my sixteenth time seeing it. I saw the original Broadway cast three times. And I know every note of it. Like, I know every nuance. I know every, every single note. So I walk into it with high expectations. And and I'm sure you're the same way that when you see a show that you love and that you've seen many times, you kind of base mm-hmm. it on one, like, if this character's good, I know it's going to be good. Um, I do that with Les Mis. Like, Anjol Ross has to be hot. That's just the rule doesn't and matter if he's any good if he can hit those matter. high notes it's doesn't just if he's hot matter. he okay. has to be hot because when he's hanging off the barricade he needs to be hot for me for rent it's roger because i need to feel for roger and i didn't <laughs> roger to me was the weakest of the cast um the ladies are the ones who were the stars um joanne for me was the strongest she As soon as she opened her mouth, I was like, oh, God, I can't wait for Take Me or Leave Me. And Mimi was one of the best dancers I've ever seen. And Maureen was Maureen. (laughs) She's very over the top and quirky, and she was what Maureen needed to be. Um, Collins and Benny left no scenery unchewed. Uh, They were very, very big. Um, But overall, as an experience... It was very overwhelming because to me, Rent was like what opened my eyes to what was possible in musical theater. And when they walk out on stage and you're just like, oh, here we go. And then the music starts for Rent and I swear tears shot like three rows ahead of me out of my eyes. I was just so I had to grab my friend that I went with and I was just like almost shaking because it it's just it feels like home. As to sound cheesy about it. Um, the highlights were definitely uh, the girls, like I said, and Angel, who was wonderful. And yes, Roger wasn't my favorite, but he was adequate. You know, he had a good voice. I just, it just, he just wasn't as strong as the other guys. And, and you could tell there was something weird with the sound where everything wasn't balanced. Like, for instance, in Christmas Bells with the magical kind of um, singing. Roger and Mark were mic'd so loud that theirs was the only part I could hear. And I honestly have never heard that vocal part before because in, 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 the, in songs like those, you, you hone in on one part and that's what you listen for, or that's what you always sing. And I had never heard their part before. So it was a little disconcerting, but then it all came together on, you know, um, and it's beginning to snow. So overall, it was super fun. I had a blast. The audience was way into it and going nuts. And even for like the the shortcomings, it was a wonderful first time back. And uh, that's great. You know, just the the overwhelming curtain call and emotions and Angel's death. And I'll tell you this: the um, 
will I lose my dignity? That hits different now. (laughs) Having lived still in the middle of a pandemic, it hits different, especially looking at people who are in the middle of an epidemic that has never been dealt with. So back then it was a drug that kept you alive for a few more years. And now it's drugs that lets you live with it, but it's still here. And with all the emotions of the last few years and everything we've gone through, that whole group therapy and life is meant to be lived thing, it hit different and it was very emotional. So, um, I had a really good time. They had, they did a good job. Um, and I am going to see Hades town in May and, but I'm glad that rent was my first show back because it was like a, a reboot, if you will. Yeah, like you said, it's a homecoming, and I'm like you. I, I probably don't know it quite as well as you do, but it's the show that I've seen the most as well. I've seen 10 different productions of it, six tours, twice on Broadway, and then two other regional productions. So, yeah, I, I'm with you. I get the same same feels every time I uh, every time I see it. Yeah, I think, and also because we know it so well, I don't mind when people make songs their own, but to a point. Um, there were a couple points in songs when I'm like, oh my God, just, just, just sing the song, please. Just please. (laughs) And it it wasn't a lot, but it was definitely two parts specifically that I was like, oh my God, can you stop? But I know this is, and correct me if I'm wrong. Is this like the last version of like the original concept and blocking and choreography and stuff? Correct. I mean, for now, yes. This, I mean, yeah. this was supposed this was supposed to be the twentieth anniversary or the twenty fifth anniversary pr- yeah. production, and now that's <laughs> it's much more than twenty five years now because it's been running for a while. So who knows if they reboot it again for the thirtieth or the thirty fifth or the fiftieth? But for now, they are supposedly retiring the the Michael Mayer staging for now. Well, overall, it's a, it's a thumbs up, and it was a wonderful evening out in Hollywood. Cool. So I have one more show that I want to shout out before we get into discussing um, something on Disney Plus. And I'm only going to do it really quickly because it's a show that's already closed. But it was a production here in Orlando from Orlando Shakes, um, formerly Orlando Shakespeare Theater. They shortened their name to make it the much less Shakespeare specific Orlando Shakes. Um, But they did a production of Much Ado About Nothing that ran from the beginning of March through the beginning of April. And Much Ado is one of my favorite Shakespeare plays. Um, I think possibly the best Shakespearean production that I've ever seen was a production of Much Ado, and it was at the Georgia Shakespeare Theater um, probably a decade ago at this point. Um, They did it both at their theater and in the park down there. It was fantastic. This one here in Orlando was probably not at that level, but it was pretty close. It was the best production of any play that I've seen at Orlando Shakes. They've done some musicals that I really enjoyed, but this was the best play that I'd seen there. Um, And it gets me excited about Shakespeare. It's one of those things where I'm sure you, like me, have seen a lot of really bad Shakespeare. I've directed some pretty bad Shakespeare, too. Um, But this production reminded me that, like, when you have actors who truly understand what is happening, not only from their perspective, but in the scope of the 
construct of the show, Shakespeare can still be a truly magical theatrical experience. And and this one was for me. So it's closed. It's been closed for a couple of weeks now. But if you have an opportunity to see something at Orlando Shakes, uh, I would uh, not not turn my nose up at it just because it's a an Orlando regional theater. I think you when you see bad Shakespeare, you realize how good good Shakespeare is. <laughs> 100%. I might have an upcoming interview for a future episode talking about Much Ado About Nothing, so I will tease oh, that, and then maybe we can revisit it in a few weeks. Lastly, we were going to talk about the new Disney Plus original movie called Better Neat Than Ever. We both watched it. Um, it's the, basically the story of a boy, Nate who auditions for his school musical and is not cast. And on a whim, he decides with his friend to go to New York from Pittsburgh to audition for the new original musical of Lilo and Stitch. So it's very Disney, and but there's a lot of good um, cast in it. And so Matt and I both watched it this week. And Matt, what did you think of it? I think this is the kind of thing that I would have eaten up as a theater kid. It was a little schmaltzy and a little um, saccharine for me at times as a cranky old 40-year-old human. But these are the types of things that I don't know that we got when we were kids, Jen. We had a lot of, you know, there were musicals, there were the classic musicals, and we watched those. But to have something that's told about kids who love theater today is, I think, really impactful. Between things like this that Disney is doing along with, you know, High School Musical, the musical, the series, which was also created. We should note that this story is based on a book of the same name. Tim Federley, Broadway alum, Tim Federley wrote that book. He then wrote the screen adaptation and directed it. He is also one of the co-creators of High School Musical, the musical, the series. And um, I think that this is just something that... It's a really good niche for Disney Plus to kind of cater to. Um, obviously, their animated mu- musicals are still doing huge business for them with like Encanto and, and all those other things. But to have this live action stuff that is playing specifically to the theater kids in all of us um, is truly special. And like you said, it's a great cast. There was a, you know, a nice... Um, not necessarily a wicked OBC reunion because they're married in real life, but having Norbert Leo Butts and Michelle Federer, who obviously were the original Fierro and Nessa Rose in the cast. And there were a few jokes um, about Wicked and it's 2003 Tony rival Avenue Q. Um, so that was fun and tons of other familiar faces. Obviously, Joshua Bissett from High School Musical, the musical, the series, and Lisa Kudrow plays Nate's aunt. But then, you know, Broadway folks like Christina Alabato and Brooks Ashmanskis as casting directors, Priscilla Lopez uh, also playing a casting director, Ellen Marsh, a good friend Ellen Marsh is in it as well. So um, really cool to see a bunch of theater people in there. But most importantly, that this was a production specifically for theater lovers and especially young theater lovers to boot. I agree that we weren't the uh, target audience for it, but I did, like you said, appreciate that it's there for especially kids in the Midwest who, who I hope that they can see there is a place for them. And this, the kid that played Nate is adorable and I think he has a future. 
and as well as his best friend, um, Aria Brooks, who played his best friend, Libby, um, they were both adorable and they were very, very good at being that age. You know, they were making bad decisions. They were getting into hijinks, but like, I believed them as, as friends and it, it being Disney, it tiptoed up to, you know, LB, LGBTQ issues, but didn't go into sure. it very far. So it's there, but it's unspoken. Um, but I, I, it was enjoyable. I, if you have a, a niece or a nephew or a kid around that age, I think, I think they would really, really dig this movie. Yeah. And it's one of those things that, and I say this all the time when, streaming services or whatever invest in doing musicals like Netflix has done quite a bit here recently. This is evergreen content because there are always going to be theater people. It might be a much smaller group of people than will watch a big blockbuster movie when it hits the service at first, but theater people are always going to watch theater content. And the fact that this is on Disney Plus, obviously Hamilton on Disney Plus as well, or the Newsies uh, filmed tour stop is on Disney Plus. Those things are going to be properties that I think will continually get viewings from theater people over the years. Same thing with um, the Matilda that's coming up on Netflix, 13 that's coming up on Netflix. They're doing a Ryan Murphy anthology series behind the scenes or based on a chorus line. We don't exactly know what that is, but like theater folks are going to watch theater stuff. So I think these are really good investments. And I hope that this does super well for Disney Plus. Not that we'll ever get numbers because streaming services don't release those and Nielsen and other organizations only have so much penetration in terms of getting that type of data. But it's, I think it's great that we are seeing so much investment from streamers in theatrically or in theater or theatrically related content that hopefully that means we're going to continue to get more, especially, you know, with big budget musicals like the color purple and wicked, you know, getting made. So, um, I was very, very pleased with this, even if, like you said, this wasn't made for us. Yeah, I have, one of my best friends has a um, eight-year-old girl, and she ate it up. And Perfect. she she went and auditioned the following weekend for The Sound of Music at our local theater. So it's it's doing its job, and I'm, I'm glad that it exists. Matt, I have one final recommendation I just wanted to mention before we oh, wrap yeah. up. Uh, it's another podcast. I'm sure you've heard of WTF with Mark Marin. I have. This week he interviewed Harvey Firestein about his new book, I, I Was heard, Better, yeah. Last Night. And it's a really good conversation. Um, if you've never listened to Mark Marin before, he can, be, he can be a little jarring because he's just like an old grumpy man. But it's, it's a perfect combo with Harvey. And... I learned a lot about Harvey and his dynamic, and I just recommend it for for people who love him or, you know, are fans of theater because he has some real good stories. And Mark read the book, and they talk about some of the stories, and they have a good conversation. So I would recommend that. Thank you for joining us on This Week in Theater. You can follow Broadway Radio at Broadway Radio on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can find me on Twitter and Medium at Eponine Q and Matt on Twitter at BWW Matt. 
You can always reach out to us with suggestions for regional theater productions, and we shall see you next time.